You're listening to the Team Guru Podcast, bringing to life the theory and principles of leadership. It's February, and that means that many of you have already failed to live up to your New Year's resolutions. Don't worry, you're not alone. Statistics show that 40% of people will have failed to maintain their resolutions after just four weeks, and by six months, that number rises to 60%. Maybe you wanted to lose weight or spend more time with your family or just put your phone down. Let's be honest, resolutions are hard. Setting goals and trying to achieve more in our personal and professional lives is commendable, but without the right structure in place, you're bound to fail. I've discussed how to create that structure many times on the Team Guru podcast, and in this episode, I want to share some of the best lessons I've learned over the past two years. Before you can begin to better organize your life, you have to organize your mind. And that's a lot harder today than it was in the past. The deluge of information we encounter on a daily basis is constantly threatening to overtake us. And that is taking a huge mental toll. The evidence is everywhere. A recent study revealed that students spend one-fifth of their class time on their phones, paying attention to Instagram instead of the teacher. Another found that workers are spending 60 hours a month distracted by digital technology. And you can only begin to imagine how much family time passes all of us by as we thumb through our emails and our favourite news feeds. Everyone talks about switching off these days, but it's a lot harder than it sounds. That's why I invited Angela Lockwood to join me back in episode 54. She literally wrote the book on how to disconnect from social media. But switch off isn't just about how to reduce our time on the internet. It's also about how to switch off our brain to stop the constant mental churn that's stressing us out and making us sick. Angela started our conversation with some simple advice about how to rethink our relationship with Facebook. I would encourage your listeners right now to look at your social media followers. So on Facebook, on Instagram, whatever it is that you have, and just have a look at those people and go, would I actually spend time with them in real life? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> if you get defriended and, by someone over the next few days, just know that they've heard Angela and they've defriended you because they wouldn't spend time with you in real life. I know, I know. <laughs> and don't take it as a personal attack if yeah. you are because, look, one of the things that I'm really, and I will get back to the other two overs, but that overconnectedness, I think what we're doing now is we're, well, actually I know that we're doing this, is we're feeling like people are wanting so much from us all the time. Mm. And when we've got all these people vying for our attention, it adds to the other two overs of being really overstimulated and overwhelmed. So what I like, and I mean that quite sincerely, is look at the people who you are following on social media and are connected with on social media, and you might need to do a little bit of a cull. And the reason I say that is because you want people in your life who add value to it, not who you know, make you either feel bad about yourself or even people who you're doing this awful comparison, this continuous comparison with. You want to surround yourself. 
Yeah, or people <laughs> who project that they are. Yeah. <laughs> That's even worse. Yeah. You know, like I'm sorry, but my Instagram post is pretty – that is me. My Instagram feed is me. But there are elements on that that I don't want people seeing me. I don't want them seeing me, you know, looking all lazy and awful in my pajamas. But that is the real. Luckily, I've been able to have, you know, a life that I do practice what I preach. But a lot of Instagram, Pinterest, the whole range of people's social media, it's not the reality of, of their course. lives. They're, so they're giving um, you the highlights yeah. package, aren't they? <laughs> they are, but I'll tell you what, I would like to see a um, social media, particularly Instagram, of the realities of life constantly. Now, that would be interesting to look at. It would be way um, more interesting, be, wouldn't it? It would just be so funny. Oh, couldn't you just imagine it? Anyway, I digress through my own humour here. I'm just getting lost in my own little funny land here. <laughs> but over, the other two uh, areas of being really overwhelmed and overstimulated and that overwhelmed side of things is oh, hang on, we sorry, have Angela, so much to do. Before you move yes. on to overwhelmed, I'm sorry, I should okay. have spoken up before. Hey, look, this overconnected thing, we talk about it a lot and it's such a prevalent topic in our society. And listeners to this podcast have heard me say a number of times that I, I really feel as though with this connectedness, we're at a really immature stage. And and tell me, tell me where I'm going wrong here. I feel as though it's all one way. We're all connected with work. For example, our emails are on our phone. People can call us at any time, day or night on the weekend, and we're giving that to them because we, we just have this, this tendency to want to stay up with what's going on. But it doesn't seem to be going the other way quite as well yet where, okay, yeah, I'm connected all the time. I'll give you some of my time at night and on the weekends, but in return, I think I should be able to go and watch my son play soccer or go and do this when I need to during business hours because it's a, it's a give and take thing. At the moment, at this level of immaturity, I feel that we're at, there's more giving on the part of the individual to the organization rather than a two-way give and take. Unfortunately, that's a big part of life. And I say that as a really broad statement that the more you give, the more people will take. Yeah. And when you give to the wrong people constantly, the wrong people will constantly take from you. And let me just sort of really quickly explain what I mean by that. If the workplace knows, if people that you work with or your, even your customers know that you're responding at 8.30 on a Saturday morning, they will expect you to respond at 8.30 yeah. on a Saturday morning. If yeah. you've emailed someone, a work email at 12.30 at night, then that person's going to be contacting you saying, well, how come you haven't responded to my email, you know, at 1.30 in the morning. And it really is important for us to start to look at our own behaviours and think, well, why are people wanting so much from us? And I write this a lot and I'm really, I really believe that if we're going to make changes in our lives, particularly through switching off, we need to take control back. And a big part of that is setting those boundaries mm. and going, you know what, when I'm at work, I'm at work. When I'm at home, I'm at home and it's game on. And that's that whole flicking the switch that I talk about a lot in the book is very much around we can't always be switched off and chilled out and relaxed mm. and, you know, in holiday mode. Yeah. But we also can't be constantly switched on and yeah. having everyone contact us 24-7. There needs to be an ability to move between the two because we've got to get work done, but we also need to have a life outside of work. And a lot of that is around creating boundaries. So if you don't want people to contact you after hours, don't contact people after hours yourself. Yeah, I like that. That's really, that's really simple. Just take control back. If you don't want to answer yeah. emails at, at 7.30 at night, don't ever do it. And don't send emails to other people. Set some boundaries that go both ways. I really like that. 
that will help you flick the switch. Now, I'm sorry, I stopped you when you moved on to Overwhelm before, so take it away. No, I love it. I love these love these podcasts where you really get to the meat of things. They're not just sort of standard questions that, you know, you gloss over. It's actually getting to meet. So hopefully your listeners are getting a lot of value from it. Yes. Um, you well, you were telling only- me before we hit record that you've been doing a lot of radio interviews lately and you get three minutes to uh, tell them how awesome your book is and you've got to be super sharp. But I guess you also are going to be an inch thick too. Yeah, and people want really have these pressing questions that they want a response to, but people don't want, you know, an hour's long worth of why it should happen and how it should happen. And that's, I guess, a part of this constant connectedness and this overwhelm of information we have. There is so much information. Just get to the point and tell me how it applies to me. And, you know, just tell me, I want to know how I can actually integrate this into my life. And I know slightly digress again, but the way when when your listeners actually read Switch Off, it's a book where now that you're having listened to how I speak, I've written it in that same way. Yeah, that's true. That I, it's um, people, whether or not it's creepy or not, people say that it feels like I'm reading it to them. <laughs> not <laughs> creepy at all. Not. <laughs> but, uh, you know, people need to know how does this apply into my real world? Mm. You know, it's fine to have all these strategies and tips and techniques, but if we can't actually say, right, well, I am busy, I am tired, I'm feeling way overconnected, overstimulated and overwhelmed, how in the world do I do this when I've got, you know, three children, six children, a husband, a wife, you know, all these other competing demands tell me how I can do it. And that's why Switch Off is a really practical book, exactly written through the frame of this is how you do it. And so that whole sense of overwhelm ties into what we were just talking about, that because there is so much we're cramming into our lives, there are so many things to do. What often happens is, is we don't know what to do with it all. So there's a couple of things we do. We either don't make any changes at all. We just sit and just keep going the way that we go. And that's when we get really burnt out. Otherwise, what we do is when we're so overwhelmed, we have a huge meltdown and we just go, this is all a bit too much and I'm sick and I'm just going to have to crash and burn right now. And again, you can hear the two, whether or not, you know, we keep going and push on or whether we give up. Unfortunately, the outcome is often similar. We get sick mentally or physically and it's not a great outcome. So that sort of feeling very overwhelmed is, is around choice, but it's also about the amount of stuff we're trying to cram into our day. Overconnected, overwhelmed, overstimulated. Angela's three O's are a powerful diagnosis of what's gone wrong in our daily lives. The three O's are taking a heavy toll on our mental health, but it's not helpless. There are some simple things you can do every day to lessen that load. In his book, The Perfect Day Formula, author Craig Ballantyne outlines a simple set of practical steps to help you imagine, design, and live the life that's perfect for you. Craig worked for many years as a personal trainer, but found even more success as a transformation coach. He bases his philosophy on the five pillars of success, but he told me that real change can start simply by getting up just a little earlier in the morning. Yeah, a lot of people make that big mistake of not knowing what to spend their time on first thing in the morning if they as I recommend in the book, give themselves a little bit of extra time before they get into their day. Or when they get to work, they jump right into email when they don't have to in many cases. And then all of a sudden it's five o'clock or whatever quitting time is. And they, they know they've been super busy all day long. 
but they don't feel like they've accomplished something. And then they're very frustrated. And I've had those days before. And that's really what drove me into researching better ways to go about my work hours, better ways to protect my time, better ways to use that because time is that thing we can never get back. I mean, I know some very wealthy men and I know that all they want is time. They don't want any new watches. They don't want any new cars. They want time. They want youth. And, you know, that's why they're spending it better than ever these days. That's one of the many things I loved about your book. You're not coming to this from a preaching perspective saying, hey, I've always lived this perfect life. I've always known this and you idiots should know this too. You've written this book because you've discovered some of these lessons the hard way because you've had tough times in your life where you were wasting time. You, you didn't know exactly what, it, what you wanted to achieve. You were unstructured. So you've earned this knowledge in a lot of ways. And that, again, gave this book for me so much more credibility. Well, yeah, I was the idiot, David. I was the guy <laughs> like, what are you doing? I mean, you know that you want to accomplish great things. And here you are doing this or wasting your time on another website or, you know, like you said, hitting the snooze button. One of the biggest lessons I learned was, you know, sleeping in. I would always feel like I was chasing the world's tail and it just really gave me anxiety on a low level and stress. And it never allowed me to feel productive and successful. And when I finally started getting up at the time that was right for me, just changed my life and allowed me to become more successful, more productive. Now, it doesn't mean that everybody has to get up really early in the morning, but they need to get up at the, what I guess you might call an honest time for them, the right time for them. And so we have to have that structure in place. Now, I keep promising the listeners that we're going to get to those steps and we're going to get to those steps after this very next question that I have, or this very next story that I have, and then we'll get into the meat of this. But you told a story hey, was that- we're just having such good banter here and we could probably talk for hours and hours and hours. That's the problem. Oh, I know. That's exactly how I feel as well. And and I know that some of our listeners will really enjoy that, but that I also always promise them some great tangible steps. Yeah, let's well, time to deliver. Now, before we deliver, I want to tell you a story about me that uh, I, I thought of, and I hadn't thought of it for many years, but your book made me realize it because so much of what you talk about starts with the morning, getting up early and being proactive. And, and we'll get into the guts of that in a second. You talk about the trouble of the snooze button, and it reminded me of my time at university, I guess you would say college in your world. And you know, my time in university was like so many other people. I, I worked nighttime jobs. My particular glamorous job was washing dishes. And I often washed dishes until two, three in the morning when these big banquets would end. And, and then I might have an eight o'clock or a nine o'clock lecture at university that I had to get to. So my alarm clock was very important to me. It was about two decades before the iPhone was around. So I had this old fashioned alarm clock. And there were times where my alarm clock would go off to get me to university. And I didn't even remember hitting the snooze button or turning it off. And, and I was back asleep and, and missed a lecture. So I ended up having to put my alarm clock over the other side of the room. And that's one of the things that you recommend in your book as a way to get your day started fresh without making that really poor half asleep decision to stay in your warm bed because it's easy right now, but it's actually quite a destructive start to your day. Yeah, absolutely. And certainly it will, that's a way that will work for a lot of people. Now, if you have a spouse that uh, needs to sleep a little bit longer, you'll have to come up with some alternatives. But there are other ways to do it 
whether you reward yourself for getting up instead of hitting snooze, either internal rewards or external rewards. But it is so important because there's many, many downsides to hitting the snooze, obviously, besides being late or being late, one of them. But also you're actually in most cases going to feel groggier if you go back into a sleep cycle. And so there's actually some science that you, you know, sleep science that you want to avoid that snooze. But, you know, I feel that I do that too, David. It just is that little extra that assures that I won't slip into that bad habit of hitting the snooze and then getting behind in my day because I just know that that's wrong for me. Well, there's no such thing as an alarm clock at my house anymore. I have a a nearly three-year-old, which the guests hear hear about a lot. And I have, what is it now? I have a 14-day-old in my house as well. So thank you very much. And it is a wonderful time in our lives. It's beautiful, but there is no alarm clocks and there are no snooze buttons at our house. In fact, I have the most lovely alarm clock in the world because our our, our nearly three-year-old for a long time gets out of his own bed and just comes into our room and stands beside our bed and just sort of (laughs) taps us and says, daddy, daddy, go downstairs, go downstairs. He always wants to start his day downstairs with his toys. So that's a really nice snooze button. All right. So we've, I've, I've fluffed around long enough. Let's cut to the chase. Talk us through the way you encourage your listeners, your clients, your readers to structure their perfect day so they can take control of their life. Absolutely. So one of the things that I recommend to everybody is to get up 15 minutes earlier than what they're doing right now. And, and here's why I want people to do that. Most of us just don't get time to think. And we have either big opportunities or we have big problems in our life right now that really need our focus and attention. But if you get up with the snooze and you know you get a little bit late and then you're rushing through your morning and you hit email first thing and then you end up at the end of the day, feeling like you've accomplished nothing, then you're going to go home probably late and barely get to bed on time, maybe watch some TV. And you didn't think at all. You didn't have any time for thinking. And if you have problems in your life, those aren't going to get resolved unless you have a chance to think about them. So get up 15 minutes early, go to your kitchen table with a blank piece of paper and a pen, sit there, identify your number one problem or opportunity in your life, whether it's getting out of debt, whether it's making more money, whether it's finding the love of your life, whether it's finding the house of your dreams and start putting together a plan of action with some deadlines in there for your activities. And you will find a way to achieve whatever it is that you want. But it all starts with that clear thinking time. It's such a simple concept, getting up 15 minutes early. I mean, it it is nothing, but you're so right. As opposed to getting up and, and being in a rush and I've got to get dressed and I've got to get this done for the kids and I've got to get in the car and rush, rush, rush. You just give yourself that little bit of breathing space, which gives you that opportunity to, to do something productive, some, something that's proactive, something that's thoughtful that you just would never have had the chance to do otherwise. And if you do that every day, the cumulative effect is simply enormous. Yeah, it's massive. And I mean, for somebody who's already feels like they're getting up early already, start with five minutes. I mean, even a couple of minutes of thinking one good idea that can then propel you to have some progress in your life is so important because one of the reasons that so many people lose motivation on changing on something in their life is that they don't see progress. And when we don't see progress, our motivation decreases and we, we quit going after our goal or 
whatever project we're working on. This is true for employees as well. So if there's business owners listening, you want your employees and your team members to have that sense of progress. Even if you're going through a tough time right now, always show them that, hey, we're making progress on this problem. Otherwise, they come in and become demotivated and then things get worse. So just focus on progress a few minutes at a time to start and you build from there. Now, does that 15 minutes that you spend, that golden time, that thing that you get to do before anyone else in the house wakes up, does it have to be that sitting down, writing down, goal setting type activity? Or can it simply be squeezing in that thing in your life you always wish you had chance to do, but you never got to do? Yeah, absolutely. That's a wonderful question and well phrased. And it, it can be anything. Now, it needs to be one of the top priorities in your life. And it yeah. could be that one of the top priorities in your life is getting back into better health. Yeah. And so it might be making meals for the day. It might be doing five or 10 minutes of exercise or meditation. It might be spiritual time. If you read the Bible, do Bible study, it can be anything that really improves you and improves your situation in life. And so it doesn't have to be sitting down at the kitchen table, but if you have a problem to work through, that's probably a good place to do it. Just as people feel listless and uninspired, so too can organisations. We've all worked for companies that care very little about their workforce. That pervading sense of exploitation breeds demoralised workers who eventually just stop caring. Companies have personalities too, but they're not set in stone. My guests in episode 66 explained how organisations can change for the better. Nicholas Barnett and Rodney Howard have spent decades helping companies to better understand their corporate culture and how to instill a sense of purpose and hope. They join me for a chat shortly after the publication of their book, Why Purpose Matters. In it, they argue that companies are very good at telling you what they do, but almost none of them tell you why they do it. In fact, a lot of management teams wouldn't know where to start in answering that question. Making money for shareholders just isn't a good enough reason. Companies, they argue, need to find a distinctive and unique philosophy. I'd break it up into two groups almost. Those that are unaware and those that are aware. Those that are unaware have no concept of what we're talking about because they're really reasonably unevolved people and often unevolved people run relatively unevolved organizations that are fairly immature. And so, you know, you can look at some, you know, younger organizations or startup organizations or organizations that are in the first generation or second generation. And often they're organizations that we've been talking about, which are almost totally focused on profit and nothing else, because they haven't got to a stage of evolution whereby they've gone beyond survival or security means. And purpose is a higher order need, if you like. And so sometimes we actually need to get through some iterations, if you like, of our evolution. But then there are people who are aware of some of the stuff we're talking about and choose not to engage. Um, And they're the ones who consciously choose um, to continue just to focus on profit because it's easy, it's quick, um, it serves a a need that the community has, many people have an expectation about, which is we're just here to make shareholder returns as good as we can. And I think Often what happens is, unfortunately, and Nick and I see this a lot, you know, organizations will then say, okay, well, let's go on this purpose journey. 
everyone else is doing it. We need to tick the box. It goes back to the old days in the 80s of the mission statement that you used to go around. You might remember often in the 80s and 90s, you'd go around and you know, you'd walk into a bank and there'd be this, this document on the wall that would say our mission statement. Well, that was a, you know, an early version of a purpose statement, if you like. But unfortunately, often what happens is that, you know, that might be that expert, you know, that process is delegated to HR. You know, somebody says, um, okay, HR department, can you come up with something? You know, some people in HR get together over a couple of hours. They get together a fancy bunch of words. It all sounds very good. They pass it back up to the CEO. The CEO says, this is great. I love it. And then suddenly an email goes out to, you know, 15,000 people in the organization and says, this is our purpose. And, you know, that happens so often. The great problem with that is, number one, it's not done with meaningful intent. Number two, it's not done with a great deal of integrity. Number three, there's no inclusivity or participation. So the people who you want to be involved in the creation of this collective sense of purpose are not involved at all. And number four, it comes down as a decree from on high from the boss. And so it just becomes another absolutely meaningless organizational artifact that goes on a mouse mat, goes on a, you know, on the on the front page of um of a booklet. You see it down the written at the bottom of an agenda and it's a strap line, but it absolutely has no relevance. And unfortunately what that does is it just reinforces the myth that these things are only done because people in leadership roles feel as though they have to do them as a tick-the-box exercise, but there's no genuine intent or integrity behind the endeavor itself. And all that does, unfortunately, is just increase some of the cynicism and despair that we've already spoken about that is part of the malaise of many large organizations that we see in the world today. Yeah, that was the point I was about to make easily could do more harm than good if not done with authenticity. Because if you're lining up in a bank, watching people be treated very badly and and waiting 20 minutes in line, and you look on the wall and there's a mission statement that says that uh, customers are our number one priority and we treat them with respect or whatever it might be, it's, as I say, it would do more harm than good to have those meaningless words up on a wall that are in no way connected with the experience that you had. I'm going to stay with you for a minute, Rodney, before I'm going to throw to Nick, who's going to start talking us us through the steps that you guys work with organizations to find their purpose. But before I do that, Rodney, I want to ask you about individuals. Everything we've talked about here, either, either knowing what you're about or not knowing what you're about on an individual level. Are all of these things the same? Are they, they all holding true for us as, as human beings? Well, my sense is the metaphor is exactly, it's exactly appropriate. In other words, you know, if we, if we think about people as organisms and then we think about bunches of people as, as a larger collective of organisms and then you put those people in a team, you put them in a division, you put them into a larger organisation, you put them into a massive organisation, you're dealing with collectives of organisms that become just larger and larger organisms. So let's go back to us as individuals and think about, you know, the way I often describe it to people is, you know, that the most superficial thing that we can see is the way that we behave. You know, that's our sort of our physical domain. And if we, if we go a level deeper in our human experience, then we go to the level of our psychological space, our, our mental energy, the way that we think the way that we perceive our attitudinal frame. And if we go another level deeper, we get into our emotional space, which is where all of our decisions are made. And it's also where our values connect. 
And if we go right to the very core of what makes us as people, we're into that spiritual domain. So we've got, you know, we've got our body, we've got our mind, we've got our emotions and our feelings, and we've got our spiritual essence. And whether or not you're a religious person or a non-religious person, another way of thinking about that spiritual essence is spirit in action, the way that we actually bring our spiritual energy to life in action in our life is through our sense of purpose. And it's part of the reason why purpose is such a deep, central yearning for us as people. We can see how we move and we can see our physicality and we do our exercise and our yoga and so on. We can start to gain a sense of what are our thoughts, what are our belief systems, what's going on in our attitudinal frame and our mindset, and we can start to gain some choices around how we think and how we look at the world around us. We can start to get a sense of our emotional arena through our values set. You know, what's important to us? What do we prioritize? What do we really want to live and die for in terms of the things that are important for us? And then at a very central core, what is it that actually defines us in terms of contribution we want to make to the world around us, ultimately to help make this world a better place? And how does that involve us at a deeply spiritual level and give us a sense of meaning? And that's what we yearn for as people. And that yearning then at an individual level is cascaded into our organizational collective experiences, whether that be a team of five people or an organization of 55,000 people, we have a yearning to know that that sense of purpose aligns with our organizational experience and that that's where we also can make a valuable contribution. And so that's the whole essence of the book. You know, Nick and I are absolutely true believers that if organizations as a collective experience of people are able to gain some greater definition of this is what we're here for collectively to achieve. This is our contribution to making the world a better place in some way, shape or form. And that I as an individual in my daily endeavor going into that workplace can actually connect with that. Wow, that's going to make me so much more of an engaged person. It's going to make me so much more feel as I want to make a huge effort and my discretionary contribution is going to increase. I'm going to feel like I want to be a part of this contribution because I want to serve, I want to contribute, I want to become a valuable member of this organization. That's the essence of it. So the metaphor in terms of personal purpose and organizational purpose, it absolutely lines up 100%. They are extensions, one and the same. It just depends where you scale up or where you scale down. If there is one thing I took away from my conversation with Nick and Rodney, it's this. You can't lie to yourself. You have to be honest about the state of your company and the quality of your work. Only then will you be able to develop a real sense of purpose. That lesson extends beyond the workplace. People want more than just their basic needs taken care of. But if you can bring meaning and purpose into your everyday life, you will become far more productive, creative and healthy. I hope you enjoyed this special episode of the Team Guru Podcast. Remember to rank and comment on this episode on Apple Podcasts or SoundCloud, and we'll continue the conversation on our Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash team.guru. My name's David Frizzell. Thanks for listening, and I look forward to your company next time on the Team Guru Podcast. Team Guru.